0: The 4WeekMBA.com is a leading resource of business insights top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education.
1: Today I have with me, Talex uh, Teixeira, uh, professor at Harvard Business School and author of uh, Unlocking the Customer Value Chain, which is an incredible book and an incredible reading, especially if you're trying to understand how the uh, today's uh, business world uh, works. Thank you for joining me for this conversation, Talex.
2: Thank you, Gennaro. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: My pleasure. And uh, let's get started by uh, really what brought you uh, to study uh, business model uh, disruption, innovation. How did, you, how did you get here? I mean, uh, what uh, uh, got you passionate about this, uh, this topic?
2: So I joined the Harvard Business School in 2009. And um, I was doing research that followed from my Ph.D. in the area that eventually I called the economics of attention. And at that time, my goal was to really understand what was happening in the market for attention. If you think of it very simply, the market for attention is composed of the suppliers of attention, which are people, individuals, and the demanders or the buyers of attention, which are companies. They buy attention from media companies to to use for advertising and brand building purposes, and that was my uh, mainstream of research, but about that time many companies that I worked with started asking me about how to deal with digital disruptors. And so I visited many so-called disruptors of the time. I visited 2010 uh, Facebook and I asked the executives there, how are you planning to disrupt the, the media space? And they would, you know, in a room, the executives would say, Professor Deshira, this is what we're doing. And they started explaining me the process and I just listened and, and, and recorded. And, Uh, And then I visited other startups at the time or or disruptors uh, that grew tremendously fast, just like Uber, Airbnb, I visited Netflix, every time I would ask them the same questions. How are you planning to disrupt? The hotel industry or the transportation industry or the media industry the TV industry and every time I heard something like professor, we're doing it very differently from the others, this is what we're doing but the more I I heard that they were doing things differently the more I realized it was a common pattern they were doing all virtually the same things, the same strategy the only difference is that they applied it in their industries in a very different manner so that's how I got to really think about there is a a pattern, a recipe, a common approach to digital disruption that works across every industry, every country that I've observed.
1: Interesting. So before we get to that pattern, which is, of course, the main theme of of the book, um, what's your, uh, like uh, for you, the, the most effective definition of a business model?
2: so so business models have to achieve two purposes any business model if you think of it has to basically create value for a customer so you need to identify a customer who is the value being created for and the other point it has to capture some of this value for itself or if it doesn't make money uh, it doesn't really survive and so capturing a portion of this value in the form of revenues and profits and figuring out who this value is captured from is very important and not necessarily you have to create value and capture from the same type of entity or individual for example supermarkets today they create value for shoppers if you go to the supermarket you're basically buying products for yourself and your family and they create value for us individuals by providing all of these products at reasonably good prices. But p- few people understand that many supermarkets today make more of their money from the suppliers and the manufacturers of these products by charging them um, what we call slotting fees, which is rents for putting products on the shelf. That corresponds in the US, for example, much more money than actually margins on selling the products that are in the store. So they create value for the shopper and they capture value from manufacturers and, and other retailers. And But you know, back to your
1: point, this is the purpose of a business model.
2: Create value for somebody, capture value from somebody, might be the same or might be another one.
1: That's definitely a, a great definition. And I like the fact that uh, you highlight that when you want to start uh, with a business model, you need to look. Uh, you need to be focused on the customer, and there is a, there is a, a way for you to actually understand uh, how to build a business around the customer, which is based on the on the customer value chain. Uh, how does that work? I mean, uh, what's really a customer uh, value chain?
2: So, so uh, the customer value chain is is a conceptual idea that explains in a framework. All of these steps or activities that customers have to go through in order to acquire products and services. So, for example, if you want to buy a, a television today, your value chain goes something along the lines that you recognize that you need a new TV. That's the first part. Then you think of places to go to look for options. That's a second activity. Uh, in the U.S., you would probably go to a, a the major retailer. It's called Best Buy. So you go to Best Buy, another part, and then you look at all of the available options and you screen the options for a few TVs. Let's say I want a 15-inch TV under $1,000. And then you figure out which one you, you get somebody to help you. And then you figure out which one you like. Maybe you like the Samsung 50-inch. And then you get it. You ask for it. You pay for it. You take it home. You install it. And then you use it. And then finally, a few years later, you dispose of it. You either resell it or throw it away. So all of these activities are part of the customer value chain. And we could do this mapping of value chains for any customer. It doesn't need to be an individual. It can be a business. Businesses have value chains when they're acquiring products and services. The government has it. For whatever product you can think of or service, we go through a series of key activities in order to acquire those goods.
1: And so this is really a sort of mapping the journey that, you know, customer business or whoever you trying to be value for, Uh, is is actually taking along the way and then you were saying before that uh, you know you you managed to speak with uh, companies that were uh, disrupting the business world and they were saying uh, something along the lines you know we're doing something different but then you spotted a pattern which uh, it's I think it's uh, um, it's very effective because it really helps to analyze what's happening today in a very simple but effective way which is uh, decoupling so With decoupling, you actually understood that there is this process, this trend, which is happening right now in the business world. Uh, What's that? I mean, how does uh, decoupling work?
2: So decoupling is this idea that I've observed across all these industries and these startups that I noticed is that they weren't trying to really steal customers from what we call the incumbents, the large established companies. Uh, Airbnb wasn't really trying to steal the customer in the traditional sense from all the um, hotels in the world. If it was trying to do that, it would create hotels and maybe build it and, and get hotel rooms and then, you know, steal customers from Marriott or from the Ritz-Carlton or from any other hotel what Airbnb wanted to do was just improve the matchmaking between people that had homes to rent and people that were trying to find not just hotel rooms, but actually a different experience to stay in somebody else's home for a while. And so that key activity of matchmaking is what uh, Airbnb decided to do. Uh, If you take, uh, for example, in the beauty industry, Um, the big beauty retailer around the world is called Sephora. So most women and men also go to Sephora to buy cosmetics and beauty products. And, uh, a few years ago came one of the, one of the startups called Birchbox and said, we're actually going to help women, um, sample beauty products much more conveniently. So they created this business model of subscription boxes. Basically, you pay $10 a month, and you get four or five samples of beauty products in the convenience of your own home. So you don't need to go to the Sephora store to sample beauty products and figure out which ones work for you, which are the new products out in the market. You just receive samples at home, so it's much more convenient. In that regard, in the same manner, Birchbox decoupled the customer value chain by saying, look... We know it's important to start the process of buying beauty products by sampling beauty products. So instead of you going to Sephora, just subscribe with us and we'll send the samples to your home. And then afterwards, when you realize which products you really like to buy the full-size item, you can even go to Sephora and buy it or go Amazon or go anywhere else. But in that regards, Birchbox decoupled the customer value chain because it took away not all of the activities that were being provided by Sephora, but just one key activity, which is the sampling of beauty products. And that is decoupling. When you go across all these markets, you see that disruptive startups are choosing one activity to do for the customer much better instead of trying to substitute all the activities that are doing by being done by the established company for themselves they really specialize in a key activity in the customer value chain that customers are not fully satisfied with
1: and another key aspect that uh, probably you identified through, through your research is that um, at least my understanding from the book then of course you can uh, correct correct me if I'm mistaken but it's um, in many cases, those those companies is not just uh, they are uh, innovating through technology. Actually, is the opposite. They are uh, uh, they are innovating through through a business model. Uh, so it's more like uh, really a process of, uh, um, as you said, understanding uh, what um, um, link in the value chain they they could break so that they can deliver a different business model. Is that is that right? Is there, is that the right interpretation?
2: So absolutely. And let's just start with this this realization that we are infatuated with technologies, right? There's lots of companies out there, the bigger, more established companies that have used technology to succeed and gain a reign in the market. So we can look at Apple, we can look at Google, these companies created new technologies and that drove their success. But the vast majority of startups and tech companies out there that are considered tech companies, when you look at what, started their process of disrupting other markets, which means stealing huge market shares in short period of time, it was not due predominantly to a major technology. So let's take Uber, for example. Uber launched in 2008. And when it launched, you would download an app. And basically, if you wanted a car to come to you to pick you up to take you to the airport, you would text or call them, and on the other side of the line, somebody received this text message or a phone call and would try to call up other car companies that had what we call black cars essentially kind of you know high-end limousines or, or or high-end cars they would call them up essentially just like a taxi dispatch service operates would start calling and saying oh can you go pick up this person and then they would uh, uh, respond with a text message or email saying there's a car on their way and probably the only innovation at the time was something quite simple which is for the first time you saw in a map a little car coming to pick you up so you you knew that was happening, but it was not automatic as it is today. You press a button and there's nobody else actually trying to route cars to you. It's done automatically through an algorithm, right? But at the time, this was not the case and it grew. It grew because it was convenient for customers and people had the assurance that the car was company, but they had no new innovative technology that no, nobody else had, right? It, it was fun, fun, fundamentally a service for the customer that was a better experience and a new business model. You didn't have to pay when the car uh, left you, you didn't have to, uh, you know, essentially get a taxi and go through all the hurdles and hassles of, 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 uh, hailing a cab.
1: Yep. So it's, it's really not uh, about uh, technology, but it's about business model innovation. That's a, uh, that's a great point which I, I want to stress and uh, highlight because it's a uh, it gets very confusing right now when you look at the companies that uh, we call uh, this disruptive company, uh, companies, we always think uh, of them as, uh, you know, companies that innovated with, the, with their technology when instead uh, you pointed out is about business modeling. And in your research, you also um, actually uh, pointed out that uh, there, there were like three phases that we went through, especially with the advent of, of the web uh, and now we are living of course in this in this phase, which, more, which is more about decoupling. But what were those uh, two previous phases that actually uh, when we went through and uh, were also important in transforming the, the business world as as we knew it?
2: So when I started to try to understand digital disruption, basically what my initial hypothesis, what I thought, and everybody else probably thought at the time is that disruption comes kind of consistently and frequently throughout time. You know, every week, every month, there's a new startup, there's new technologies, new business models, new ideas. And every month, some market is kind of going into a disruptive phase, right? But what I realize is that's not the case. The disruption forces comes in big, discrete chunks of time. It's not continuous, but at one moment there's something that happens and many, many markets get disrupted or the process starts. And that's why I call the waves of disruption, right? There's a wave that comes and then it subsides and then there's another wave that comes. The first wave Wave, and by the way, these two previously waves, we all know very well what happened, and so we can look at these waves. So the first wave started around 1994, 1995, when the internet becomes popular, and essentially the first wave is what today we call unbundling. Basically, before, as a consumer, I would have to buy a newspaper that was a series of essentially products inside the newspaper. Right, a newspaper has articles, restaurant reviews, classified ads. Uh, um, comic strips, all sorts of things. And there's no way for me to just buy one or the other. I have to buy the whole bundle. The same thing if I was to buy a CD 20 years ago. I had to buy 15 tracks of songs. I couldn't buy one at a time, rarely. Um, The same thing with textbooks and many other types of media. And what came with the beginning of the internet and popularization of the internet was uh, companies started to unbundle that. So Google would provide me one article at a time to read. Uh, Craigslist would provide me just the classified ads. Uh, Yelp would provide me just restaurant reviews. That was the first wave of unbundling from 1994 to about uh, 1999, 2000, there was a big wave. All of these startups came to disrupt and unbundle, breaking the product into pieces and selling or giving it for free to customers. This way subsided and then in about the year nineteen ninety-nine to two thousand a second wave came and the second wave was very different in the sense that companies that offered products through intermediaries to the consumer. So think of travel services. The travel agent would get hotels and airlines and services and, and tourists tourism activities and would put them in a package and, and give it to consumers. In this second wave of of business model innovation, these companies started going direct to the consumer. So airlines started selling uh, airfare direct to consumers, hotels direct to consumers, and that is what we call disintermediation, basically. The simple idea is to cut out the middleman. There was a lot of businesses disrupting markets that were cutting out the middleman and offering their products and services direct to consumers. That wave peaked in 2000. and about 2005, most of it was done. Now, what I've observed at this third wave that's been happening in the last few years is this idea of decoupling. Instead of breaking the product apart, which is unbundling or breaking the supply chain apart, which is disintermediation, this, this third wave is breaking apart the customer value chain.
1: That's a, that's a very interesting point. So we went from, like, as you said, uh, breaking apart the product, supply chain, and now it's about the consumer, the customer. But um, how do we actually know what determines the choices of those con- consumers today? I mean, as a business, how can you actually understand that? What is the? There is like a process for that.
2: So, so that's a great question, Gennaro, because uh, each different industry people tend to think that customers want different things, right? And basically, if you would summarize it, you look, why do people want to buy it? Which cars do people want to buy? Which furniture do they want to buy? Which food do they want to buy? You know, Which hotel do they want to stay in? And obviously, in any industry, there's particularities for customers' preferences. And many times we talk about quality. Customers want quality cars, quality hotels, quality furniture, quality this and quality that. But when you look really, really in deep, What drives major decisions, disruptive decisions, which means customers in mass change their purchase habits in a short period of time dramatically, is at the end of the day, it's costs. Customers want to get the products and services that they desire for the lowest cost possible. But the way I think about costs is not just monetary costs. It's not just what they're going to pay for it. Essentially, it's the entire costs that are involved in acquiring these products and services. So one of them is actually money, but the other one is time. What is the time it takes for me to search for a hotel? What is the time it takes for me to receive my package through the mail if I buy on e-commerce? Right? Time is an important element. and The third important element is effort. How effortful is it for me to acquire, to compare and acquire the television that I want? How effortful is it for me to get a car to my door that will take me to the airport? So when I think about customers in different markets, I always tell my students that you should think about those customers as having three pockets with currency they have monetary currency money they have time currency and they have effort currency and their decisions are going to change based on who can reduce those three costs the most if you can reduce those costs that's what we observe the major disruptive changes so Airbnb reduced this these three costs Uber reduces cost Amazon dramatically tries every day in every market it is to reduce these costs
1: interesting and those two, the, the most interesting part to me is that uh, you can use the same framework but you understand any industry. And of course, you also identified uh, sort of a four dimension. It's important. And that's uh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, how important is branding? Because in marketing, of course, we highlight, we emphasize branding. Branding is everything. But uh, how important is branding? Also in the past?
2: I think that... You know, anybody that is in business will know how brands are important. There's no, there's no benefit in keeping talking about the value of the brands. What is new, and is a game changer to me today, is the reduction in value of branding. Consumers before would be loyal to brands. People that liked Nestle chocolate would always buy Nestle chocolate. People who liked BMW would keep buying BMW. And you could see that the loyalty to brands of manufacturers and service providers was very high. What we're observing more and more is a reduction of the loyalty of brands. People are looking at available new options that have a new brand that they don't know of. They're not really aware of it or they don't have the experience of it, but they're willing to risk to try out new brands, right? Think of in the beginning, why did people even try Uber? There's absolutely no reason for you to try Uber. There's a risk. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know the business model. You don't know all these things. Yet Uber launched and it grew tremendously fast. And the same is going on for startups. Startups are taking advantage of the fact that people want better value, cheaper faster easier and they're willing to experiment with these new startups because they have a better customer experience not just in the process of buying these digital products but buying using and then disposing of or repurchasing these products and in doing so they're willing to give up the safety net of large established brands like nike like coca-cola like ibm and you name it so what we're seeing in, in financial markets today is that these big businesses, they need to innovate and they need to offer new things to customers because they can't rest on their decades of having a very large, recognizable, um, high equity brand as before. Innovation, consumer-driven innovation is now a necessary condition for you to stay in a leadership position in the market or else you will be disrupted.
1: That's a great point. And you also, I think, highlighted uh, one case, which is uh, pretty interesting, the uh, dollar-shaped uh, model, which, you know, after years of uh, dominating the market with the, with a uh, this model, which is called the Razor blade, the, the, actually uh, managed to disrupt it in a very uh, short period of time, even though Gillette has uh, had such, uh, such a strong uh, brand. So the, Definitely, uh, there is a to take, uh, into like, and then when today, like when you look at the business world, uh, the, the tools that we have, most of them they help us look at outside forces, especially when we think of uh, forty-five forces, when we think of other tools that we have. But are those tools really uh, suited uh, for us today to understand what's happening in business world?
2: Well, you know, know, Michael Porter is my colleague and I highly respect him. He did a tremendous job and his work was published in 1985 and he did a tremendous job to really show the competitive drivers in major markets, right? And so his five forces and then he came out with a sixth force and that allowed you to understand competition. And in markets in which you have many Many buyers, many customers, and few suppliers, few competitors. It's, it tended to be the case that competitors dictated much more of your profitability than actually customers or buyers. And so companies went into, you know, new markets and they realized that it was much more important to track your competition and respond effectively to your competition than to consumers. What has changed? You know, in the past 30 years is now many markets are saturated with suppliers, with companies offering products and services, right? Before you only had Gillette and Chic, Now you have a variety of other manufacturers of razor blades. And so tracking competitors, responding to competitors, understanding the forces that drive profitability in your industry is only the first step. What really is going to make you succeed is really being customer focused understanding your customers, their priorities, and delivering it for them to the point that competitors aren't really as impactful in the profitability of your business as understanding shifting customer-consumer trends. So I'd I'd say that my framework is a complement to that in that it helps you look in each market and understand what customers want. And basically, they want specialized improvement in costs. And if you deliver that, you will be far more successful than if you just keep tracking customers and and you know when I go to companies People tend to think that customer centricity is being kind of careful and being nice and being appreciative of your customers and sending them emails and thanking them. All that's not what customers want. Customers don't want relationship with companies. Customers want products and services that are cheaper, faster, more convenient, and better than the alternative. So wherever you're looking at, if you don't see a good product or service. Can you make it better? That is the way to enter market, to disrupt by decoupling and doing something small, but something much better than others.
1: Great. I mean, that's uh, an incredible point here and it's very important to uh, highlight it. Um, And there is like, so if today I'm I'm trying and I'm willing to start a business and I want to look at disruptive disruptive forces that are out there for me to get going, how, where, where would they, would they start moving? Like, what, what is your, your suggestion?
2: I would say first, just, you know, think of it as a, con- a consumer or a customer, business to business customer. What are these products and services that you're not fully satisfied with, right? Um, incumbents require you to do a series of activities with them. Some are probably good. Some are not that good. These that are not that good. They function as your beachhead, as your entry gate into a market, right? You're going to try to look at it, one activity that you can do better, right? That, you, that customers are not fully happy that you can do better in a cost sense or deliver it digitally, which generally using these digital technologies will ra- allow you to reduce the cost for the customer of that activity. And once you do that, you will notice that you're going to start stealing customer activities from the incumbents. And that is the way for you to gain a foothold in the market by offering these. So think of it as all of these opportunities, but not to really replicate what's available. Just a way to think of doing something specifically better, right? To give an, a, a very trivial example. Uh, there are many um, hair, hair salons in the U.S. and generally hair salons for women, they cut your hair and they wash your hair and dry your hair. And there's a company that came here and is growing really fast. It's called Dry Bar that said, you know what, they cut your hair well, but they don't really dry your hair very well. And so for women who want to have their hair dried better, they can just go to Dry Bar and it's like a little store and now they have hundreds and hundreds of stores all across the US that are just doing one thing better drying women's hair faster more convenient to book a time and 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 cheaper on kind of on the on the margin and basically with not much use of technologies right if you start with a technology first you're going to try to find a place to use a technology that's very complicated to start with the customer pain point in an activity
1: Right, and you, you need to start uh, from a very specialized, uh, activity that you can cover better than the, the, the current, uh, currently.
2: And that's right. Specialization is this big force of, of creating opportunities for startups, or else you're going to compete with big companies that have thousands of employees and billions of dollars and things like that. There's no way to win unless you specialize and see their weak points. And so when I look at the customer value chain, I have a recipe for disruption in my book. It's a five step process. And the first step is map out the customer value chain, the second step is figure out those activities that create value, those activities that capture value, those activities that erode value, choose one of them, and your goal is to basically decouple by breaking the links from those activities so you can steal it from incumbents. The way you do that is by reducing the monetary, the time, and the effort costs, and once you do that, you will understand that those large companies that are going to lose activities are going to respond, but there's a few chapters in my book that shows what are the typical responses so you can can evaluate and preempt before they respond you can preempt them and then that creates your sustainable business model
1: great framework just to finish up and it was an amazing session what's next i mean now we're living in this decoupling era but did you spot a trend that is shaping right now that's shaping the future well
2: you know Personally, I think that decoupling and the analog, after you decouple, how you grow, you grow by adjacent, stealing even more of these adjacent activities. This is the next trend that I'm seeing. When when I look at Alibaba in China, Amazon in the U.S., Airbnb also, what they're doing is they're doing a process of coupling new activities to their decoupled business model. And this is the way they're growing. For example, Alibaba started in e-commerce, and then it went into payments, then it went into logistics, then it went into uh, search engines, and then they went into software hardware. This is a process known by coupling. And uh, chapter eight of my book explains how to go about this. So this next wave is actually coupling. And we're going to see more and more businesses go that started in one industry digital industry and then they moved very to very very disparate and different industries and they do so by kind of coupling these activities in a very smart way that benefits the customer
1: already so from decoupling to coupling thank you
0: You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.